So last week I had to take a quick, quick trip to Michigan because one of my, well, my dad's best friend since he was 13 years old had passed away. He was actually, about a month ago, he was in a a tragic car accident and uh, his life was taken. And so there was a funeral in Michigan that I attended along with my parents and some of my aunts and uncles and my sister and a few of my cousins. And this funeral happened to take place in a very well-known place called Battle Creek, Michigan. Now, some of you may have heard of this place for various reasons. Uh, some of you maybe don't, aren't, aren't all that familiar with it. But Battle Creek, Michigan used to be sort of the epicenter of the Seventh-day Adventist church. It's actually where the, the, the denomination was first formed and officially recognized as a, a denomination. And um, one of the interesting things that was, is there in Battle Creek is that um, there is a particular cemetery that is there. We're, we're going to be talking about death quite a bit today, if you don't mind. We've already talked about it a little bit this morning. But um, there's a cemetery, and it was on a Saturday afternoon. The funeral was at 4 o'clock. I had gotten in late the night before, went to a, a church service there in Battle Creek, and I said, I want to go to the cemetery because there are some very well-known Seventh-day Adventist figures who are buried in the cemetery. In fact, many of the, the early, what we call pioneers of the faith, are buried in the cemetery called the Oak Hill Cemetery. And so there are people like... Ellen White, who actually was uh, one of the founders of our denomination, she uh, is from Gorham, Maine, and she married a man by the name of James White. And uh, here's their, let's see, here's my clickers working. So this is their actual tombstone. Uh, James is on the, the right and Ellen is on the left. He was from Palmyra, Maine. So two Mainers started this whole denomination. They actually met... I did, was doing some research a number of years ago. They actually met, in all places, they met in Orrington, Maine. That's where they, they met, and they fell in love. So it's very interesting, little research you can do. But there was another uh, family that was uh, well-known, and they, they were well-known beyond just the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and that is the last name of, you ready for it? You see the, the name there on the bottom? Kellogg. This, was, this plot was right next to the Ellen and James White plot. Kellogg, you may know, there's, there's two brothers. One was named John Harvey Kellogg. He uh, started this huge hospital, or what they called in those days a sanitarium. It was a health center, and people came from all around the world to go to this, cemetery, uh, to this sanitarium. And his brother was named Will Keith Kellogg, and together they invented something called cereal. They actually were the inventors of the cornflake. And so they started, Will Keith did, they started what has become the Kellogg Cereal Company. So when you sit down and eat breakfast in the morning, you can thank the Kellogg family who were Seventh-day Adventists. So it's very interesting. Now, as we were walking around the cemetery, all of a sudden my attention was arrested because they're a little ways from the, uh, the, the Kellogg and the white uh, uh, grave sites, was this ginormous, ginormous monument. You see, you see that right there? That is a tombstone. That is a grave site. 
And it's just, as you're walking around, you, just look, you, you can't help but see. You think, okay, is this a museum? Or is this a, you know, some sort of memorial? And if, if you can't see it on this picture, but I snapped a, a picture of it. This is actually the gravesite of a man by the name of C.W. Post. You ever heard of him? He started, check this out, Battle Creek is like the center of cereal. He started the Post Cereal Company. He had come to Battle Creek to go to the sanitarium that John Harvey Kellogg had, had, had started. And as he was there, he was impressed with the food that they offered because they were serving really healthy food, including the cornflakes and all these other cereals and stuff. And he became impressed and inspired, and he decided to start his own cereal company called The Post. He was not Seventh-day Adventist, as far as I know. Yeah, He started something that actually, this is kind of an inside joke, but many Seventh-day Adventists like to drink. It's called Postum. That comes from C.W. Post. It's a, it's a, it's a veggie coffee. Uh, but anyway, so, but as I looked at this, at this tomb, I thought to myself, why would you need such a huge tombstone? Like, to think that you, and I, and I don't know Post, I never knew him, I don't know much about him, I do know that, tragically, he actually took his own life. That's how his life came to an end. But to think that in death, this guy was a millionaire, to think that in death, you would still need Something as ginormous and big as that. To memorialize the greatness of your life. It was very, very sobering as I reflected on that. I want to spend a few more minutes this morning just very quickly looking at a parable that Jesus, I would say, in this parable, he promotes what would be the great reversal. I'm going to call it that this morning. The great Reversal, And it's taken, once again, from the Gospel of Luke. We've been going through this series. This is now the fourth time we've been on this topic. The series called Blessed Are the Poor. And as we've noticed throughout, especially the book of Luke, Jesus makes such a huge deal about this disparity between rich and poor. The temptation that you and I might have is to think to ourselves, well, it's a good thing that I don't, have a place in this whole parable, or I don't have a place in the story, I don't have a place in the series, because I am neither rich nor am I poor. And so we might get comforted into thinking, well, this doesn't apply to us. But one of the greatest temptations that we have within Christianity, especially here in the, in the West, is to enjoy a very beautiful middle-class Christian experience. And that's just as challenging to our faith as it is to if we were just filthy rich. But notice what Jesus says. We pick it up in the book of Luke. And this is from chapter 16. Now what I failed to include in, in the slides up here is the verse that immediately precedes what we're going to start looking at in verse 14 are these words. And they're taken from verse 13. So just pause with me before you check that out. But this is, Jesus had just told a parable, and then he ends a parable with these words. He says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. He says, You cannot serve God and mammon. That word mammon is, a, is, a, is an old word for just stuff. 
for material possessions, for wealth. He says, you can't serve those two masters. And so Luke goes on to remark, he shares this observation. He says, now the Pharisees who were, what were they? Lovers of money. The Pharisees were lovers of money, also heard all these things. And they derided him. They made fun of him. They're like, what are you talking about? You can't serve both. And he said to them, you are those, now remember this little expression, we're going to return to it. He says, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. These are, these are strong words. We sometimes, you know, it's popular in many circles, to, to extol the virtue and the, the wisdom of Jesus and the meek and mild and gentle and gracious Jesus. And we say, if you could just give us Jesus, leave all that religion out of it. But Jesus has some very strong words, doesn't he? He says that what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached. Now check this out. And everyone is pressing into it. Jesus was proclaiming the kingdom and his, his ways of, of operating. And people were crowding in. They were, they were leaning in. They were pressing in. They wanted a part of it. And he says, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Whoever divorces his wife. Now I have to place a little caveat here. Because it seems to me like Jesus, in a way that I'm not quite comprehending at this point, but I'm still trying to milk it. Jesus is like taking all of a sudden a little detour, and then for like one verse, he takes this little detour, and then he comes back to his main point. So if you have any ideas as to why he goes here, you let me know, okay? But he goes on to say this, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. That's the part where I'm like, I'm not sure how this fits in. So again, we can have that conversation later. But then he goes back to the main point about riches. He says, now there was a certain rich man. Now the parable before started out this way as well. So Jesus is hammering this again and again and again. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named, what was his name? Lazarus. That is actually another name for the the Hebrew name Eleazar, which literally means God is my help. So many have identified that this is the only parable that Jesus actually uses, a literal name, and they, they postulate that the reason he uses it is to bring that message out, that God is my help. So he had this, this, this beggar named Lazarus, and he was full of sores who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. This man is just out on his luck, isn't he? So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus evil things But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from before here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. 
Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. So let me just get the caveats out of the way very, very quickly here at the beginning, okay? Because we need to clear up some things. True or false, Jesus is in this parable giving his audience a theology of the afterlife. Is that what Jesus is trying to do? He's saying, you know, I'm talking about all this, this, this wealth and the poor and all that, but I think what I'm going to do right now is just pause and just do an exposition on what happens after you die. You think that's what Jesus is doing here? If we were to conclude that, this, is, this would be the, the conclusions that we would draw from this parable here. We would conclude these things. Number one, those in heaven are in Abraham's bosom. That's what it says. That's when Lazarus goes to heaven and he's there in Abraham's bosom. Abraham's going to have to have a big bosom if all of us are going to get there, right? Number two, this is very, very quickly, we're just getting this out of the way. Those in hell are tormented in flames. Again, this is the theology of the afterlife. This is what we believe Jesus is up to in this story. Number three, those in heaven and hell can check this out. They can see each other, right? That's what what Jesus says in the parable. And then lastly, number four, those in heaven and in hell can communicate with one another. That's what they were talking back and forth, Abraham and and, uh, the rich man, right? But I don't think that's what Jesus is up to here. In fact, many scholars who have studied this, this passage have concluded the same thing. And, and these are people from all different uh, walks of their understanding of this passage and understanding of, of Christianity. There's one scholar I was reading, he just put it this way. He says, is it possible that Jesus used a familiar story replete with pagan views of the afterlife and demythologized its contents? In other words, there's many people who have identified that this was a common story in that time. This, you know, it's like sometimes, sometimes we tell stories where we say, well, one day a man went up to heaven and St. Peter was standing at the pearly gates. Like, do, are any of us saying, yeah, this is how I think it's, gonna, it's all going to play out? Like, when we get to heaven, Peter's going to be there with a notebook and he's going to look down on our, you know, his notebook and say, okay, you're good, you're good, you're not good. We just know that it's like a, it's a parable to communicate a larger point, right? And so this is what these scholars postulate that Jesus is doing. By doing so, he maintained the form of the story, but incorporated true theological content. Background parallels can then be understood as a vehicle for Jesus' message and the Lord's message itself as a subtle polemic against erroneous views of the afterlife. So that's just, I just wanted to get that out of the way. Jesus is not using this parable, this story, to help us understand what goes on in the afterlife. He's merely using a common story as a vehicle by which he can communicate his larger point about rich and about poor. And what was it that we read there, there at the beginning of this passage? Notice what we had breezed by. Jesus It says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things and they derided him. And he said to them, you are those who justify, who justify yourselves 
before men, but God knows your hearts. In the original language of this passage, when it says, you are those who justify yourself, that is an ongoing state of seeking to be impressive to other people. We are in this constant experience of seeking to get our validation from the esteem of other people. And so this is what was going on with the Pharisees, is that they were using their wealth, they were using their possessions and their money as a, way, as, as a currency to buy the favor and the esteem of other people. And so many t- times today, and, I'm, and, and I can identify in my own heart and my own experience, that I want stuff or I want trips or I want experiences so that others might be able to look at me and say, oh, okay, that person's doing pretty well for themselves. Because I do not have my standing with God as it should be. And so I'm trying to to impress others in the process. Jesus goes on to say, For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. There's another version that put it this way. You are always making yourselves look good. You're always making yourselves look good. But God sees what is in your heart. The things that most people think think are important are worthless as far as God is concerned. You know, he tells this parable where, again, we just read, where the rich man is there communicating with Abraham, and he's trying to persuade Abraham. And Abraham says, you know what? You already had your reward. You got what was coming to you. You received your great reward during your lifetime. He said, you, that, that's, you put all of your all of your value, all of your, your hope, all of your heart into what went on during your lifetime. You experienced all the richness of this world because, again, they were driving for the, the, the value of the approval and the esteem of other individuals. You ever heard this expression? I remember a number of years ago I was at Andrews University and there was a chapel speaker named Tony Campolo. And uh, I've mentioned Tony Campolo before, but he's done a lot of, of work uh, for the poor, and he's a sociologist. And he put it this way, and I'm sure you've heard this from either him or others, but he put it this way, we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. Isn't that how it goes a lot? We buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. Because, again, if we, if you and I are not grounded in the gospel, in the good news of, of Jesus Christ, if we are not understanding that our value comes from not the things that we produce or the money we have or the, the houses we own, but if we understand that our value comes in the estimation of God, we will search for it Anywhere else, everywhere else, we will search for it in the approval of others, the esteem of others. We will constantly be like, like chasing after it in the, in the views of other people. And so Jesus, is, he's inviting us. I think he's inviting us to understand the, the true nature of his kingdom, the value that he places on, on, on things of this world, and that is we are the most valuable things in the universe. And so if we understand that, we don't have to experience this great reversal. Now, I have to tell you, when I, when I read this parable, I would like Jesus to wrap it up in a nice little bow and him to leave us with hope 
And for him to say, you know what, but just believe and, and everything will be all right. He doesn't leave it like that, does he? There's this, this stark contrast, as I said, this great reversal of fortunes. Where the, the, the rich man is, is now unfortunately experiencing what he reaped. And the, the poor man is in the kingdom of God and he's being treated like royalty. And again, I wish I could just say, you know what? It's all, it's all good. It's all nice. And, and Jesus like bring home a nice gospel appeal at the end where you know, he's going to say, well, you know, God loves you anyway. That's not how the story leaves us. The story doesn't leave us there. The story just leaves us with no resolution other than this this rich man wanting God to work on his behalf. And basically what God says, well, it's too late. It's too late. He said, even if one were to be raised from the dead, if if your brothers don't, don't embrace what Scripture teaches, the law and the prophets, that's what he's referring to. If they don't believe what's written there in the word, there's even one could be raised from the dead. There's nothing, nothing God can do for you. Does that leave you a little despondent? <laughs> you know, as I mentioned before, very few of us, maybe there's a few of us here, but very few of us are ever going to reach the type of earning potential that C.W. Post reached. I doubt that any of us are going to be billionaires. The temptation for us is to live the middle-class life. And maybe we don't want that big yacht or that big house or that, that you know, $100,000 car, but maybe we just want the next little thing that we think will bring us happiness. It often manifests itself in my life with, like, I don't want big things. I just want maybe just another little camera lens that will help my... Maybe, maybe I could just get a $300 drone you know what I'm saying? My life will be happy. My life will be happy. Just last night, we were, we were having, yesterday, we were having this conversation with Camden. He wants a skateboard. He's so anxious. He just wants that skateboard for his birthday. And uh, he, like, wants it now, right? You know how this goes? He wants it now. And I, I just tried to say to Camden, I said, Camden, let me, let me tell you something here, buddy. Like, remember the last thing you were so eager to buy I think it was their, their uh, Fitbits. Oh, man, they were just, they could not wait to get their Fitbits. Little kid Fitbits. And then, well, you know, like three days later, what happens? That's pretty cool, but they're on to the next thing. Like, that's, that, that's, that, that's the great lie of materialism, is that the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And yet, God wants to inhabit our hearts so that we can be content in the now with what we have and who we have. We can be content in his kingdom and his work and his love and his grace. And when we boil it right down, Jesus says, you know, blessed, again, this is the theme of this, blessed are the poor. Full stop. Blessed are the poor. For theirs is the kingdom. Theirs is the kingdom. You know, it's interesting because as I... And I don't know, I don't have some nice way to tie up and put in a nice, you know, put a little nice bow on this. But as I was there at that cemetery, circling back around, it's so incredibly ironic. Because there, 
literally in the shadows of that big monument to C.W. Post's wealth, is this little grave. It's a humble little grave. And uh, it's right behind his monument. You probably won't be able to see. Oops. You probably won't be able to see this. There is a historical uh, sign there. This is actually the, the, the tomb, the grave, of a woman by the name of Sojourner Truth. Ever hear of her? She, of course, was one of the more influential and important figures in the abolition of slavery. A humble little lady who was born in New York into a a slave family. And she had things that should not be mentioned done to her as a young slave. And fortunately, when she got to be a little older, she was granted her freedom. And so she spent her whole adult life, years and years and years, going around and giving speeches, speaking of, of the, you know, the idea of emancipating the slaves, the, to abolish slavery. And I was, I was doing some research last night. By the way, she, though she never became a Seventh-day Adventist, lived in Battle Creek, and she had a lot of interaction with Seventh-day Adventists and was very open to Seventh-day Adventism. But um, I was just reading last night. What's that? All her children did. Okay, yeah. But she, um, as, as a way to support her ministry of going around the country to, to, to speak out against slavery, and she was big in, in favor of women's rights as well, she would actually sell these little cards of herself and others, picture cards. She made a, a whole industry out of this where she would go and take pictures and then she would sell them around. And that's how she would support herself. And all I'm just thinking is this great reversal. Imagine resurrection morning. Imagine resurrection morning. Sojourner Truth, her original name was Isabella Bomfrey. That's right. Imagine resurrection morning. And the graves are open. And there's Sister Truth coming out. And, and the great reversal will happen. I don't know. I'm not saying what's going to happen to CW Post. I don't know. And I'm not trying to say that they are you know, good and evil right next to each other in the tomb. But the great reversal, where the humble people of this world are those who make up the kingdom of God. And so I just want to invite you this morning, as you think about the invitation of Christ to, to, to be poor in spirit, as Matthew says, and to recognize your poverty so that Christ can inhabit your heart so that you might be a channel through which God can bless the world. And so that's my invitation to you this morning. It's very simple, but may we all live in light of the the kingdom of God, which is breaking in and is seeking to be a light to those who are desperately searching for some meaning.